All right, all right, all right. Welcome to the CXM Experience. And today's topic was perfectly suited to Mr. Hendrix and his tunes. Uh, as always, I am Grad Khan, CXO at Sprinkler, and I'm joined today by Mitchell Ozak. And um, Mitch is actually a very important part of my life. Mitch is the very first person that I ever quotation marks managed, although I think, Mitch, we can all agree that I wasn't really managing you. You were probably managing me, but technically speaking, you reported to me. Uh, Mitch and I met many years ago at Procter & Gamble. Uh, I was brand manager and he was my brand assistant. And uh, we were on uh, a brand called Cheer and had a lot of fun. Uh, Mitch went on to have a great career at Procter & Gamble and has uh, continued on to do some very interesting things. I'll let you tell you let him tell you about it in a second. Um, but what I talk about today is I want to talk about the transition of brands to customer experience when they're moving from something that is in a quasi illegal state. And so let me use a, let me use alcohol as sort of the sort of kickoff for this. So at one point in the United States during prohibition, alcohol was illegal. Um, there were ways of getting it. Like you could get uh, a prescription. That's actually the reason that Walgreens became the pharmacy it is today because Walgreens um, decided to be really all in on alcohol prescriptions and they were um, that Walgreens popped up all over the place and people could go in and get alcohol by prescription. They also allowed it in clubs. So if you look around, there's a lot of old clubs that have usually been converted to something else, but like the Elks Club and the, you know, the Oaks Club and all these other different clubs. Um, Seattle is full of them. And those clubs were a place where you could get a drink in the club, but you couldn't you couldn't couldn't drink alcohol uh, as as much at home. And, and the reason that what they did in prohibition, which was kind of interesting, is they didn't actually make drinking alcohol per se illegal. They made the production and distribution of it illegal, and that made it really tricky. Um, but then all these sort of you know, overnight sort of gin places would pop up and people were finding all sorts of ways of consuming alcohol. And it actually led to the birth of cocktails. So the reason cocktails started right, right around the time of prohibition is that a lot of the alcohol that was being produced was being produced in very low quality ways. And so it was terrible alcohol. And so the cocktail was invented to mask taste of poor tasting alcohol. Uh, which is kind of interesting. Um, prior to prior to this time, they didn't really have uh, cocktails in a major major quantities, and so cocktails really emerged out of that um, uh, that that culture uh, of the 1930s. And of course, we enjoy them all today. Now, there are other categories that are going through the same kind of thing. For example, cannabis. Now, cannabis is sort of midway in its transition from being something that was massively prohibited and you know only purchased in paper bags uh, illicitly on street corners to something that you can now buy in dispensaries in many locations across the United States and in Canada. Uh, and Mitch will talk about that a little bit. And also psychedelics, which are on the very early stages of becoming legalized. And they're also kind of moving from being, you know, very, very, very underground to something that people will be buying. And what's going to happen is all these products are going to go through a transition to branding. And as they go through a branding phase, they're going to be going through a customer experience phase. And all these companies will start to think about customer experience. And I would argue that customer experience is pretty poor in most of these categories right now. So let's kind of kick off for today. That's one of those kind of frames up what we're going to talk about. Uh, Mitch, welcome. Welcome to the CXM Experience. Thank you, Grad. It's a pleasure to be with you. It's a real honor to have you on. Uh, it's really great talking to you. So maybe just for the folks listening, just quick background on sort of your your career and what you've done and sort of where you specialized. And then, and then let's just start jamming a little bit on where we're going in these cannabis and psychedelic markets. 
Okay. Thank you, Grant. So I'm currently a uh, consultant to the global cannabis, legal cannabis, and legal psychedelic industries. And what that means is I work with like early stage companies as well as more mature legal companies um, with their go-to-market strategy, with their operations, and on the capital market side, which basically is about raising money, valuations, and and pursuing growth strategies through both the public and the private markets. So it's these are dynamic sectors, and as you correctly pointed out, they're even when they go legal, they're in a state of flux because of various industry dynamics, lacks lack of data, um, as well as you know different machinations between the firms. But it's clearly an exciting time to be in those sectors because they are truly transformational both from a uh, macroeconomic perspective, as well as from a patient and a consumer perspective. And as you aptly pointed out, uh, many of the, of the legal participants, as well as some of the former illegal ones, are looking to create brands because it's essentially like tech was 20, 30 years ago. It is a land grab to be able to get brand awareness and brand equity in the minds of consumers as well as uh, channel partners and regulators and so on and so forth. Well, so and how, how do people think about this market? I mean, are people actually, are there P&G marketers in there right now? Are they thinking about customer experience? How, how are they thinking about brands? Um, all of the above and a lot more. So if we just look at legal cannabis for now, which has been illegal in some states for upwards of six years, and Canada it's been fully legal for a tad over two years, we really have a wide variety of different marketers and what I'll call uh, uh, customer experience people. We have some traditional P&G trained folks like myself. Uh, we have a variety of tobacco and beverage alcohol oh, uh, right. marketers. We have some pharma marketers and we have some amateurs that have come up from the black market or from unrelated industries who you know put the marketing hat on and now uh, claim expert status. So it really is a wide variety of them. But I would say to you that certainly not any of those groups have any kind of a monopoly on insights, best practices, or you know how to approach this brave new world. Well, you know what's interesting to me about this and about this sort of market in general is that if you think about how alcohol has moved from being literally prohibited to something that, you know, we celebrate and talk about and we, we, we watch Super Bowl ads about it and we have a lot of fun with it. Um, it's, you know, very normalized. If you look at these other substances, which have some people would argue are actually better for you than alcohol. Uh, and certainly alcohol causes an awful lot of problems out there. So it's not exactly a, um, a consequence-free um, drug, but, you know, people can behave responsibly. Um, but you think about these other ones, you know, they don't, they don't sort of feel that way. Um, you always feel a little bit like, you know, you're doing something wrong when you're doing it. And I think this um, stigmatization of the product is a very interesting uh, aspect of how you have to work through the customer experience. Because I think to a certain extent, um, there's an aspect of how do customers feel comfortable even going and buying it. Uh, absolutely. So let's look at cannabis as uh, as a broad case study on that. There is still, even in Canada, I would argue maybe twenty to thirty percent of Canadians, and we're a fairly liberal country, who still hold a very strong stigma to cannabis. Right. To even 
for its medical usage, which is all for therapeutic uh, benefits. That is a problem um, insofar as you want retail access in different markets and, and local uh, you know, city councils bar that, or that could be through various religious injunctions and so on and so forth. But I'm happy to say that in Canada, as well as places like California and Colorado and Washington, the train has left the station. Those 20 to 30 percent of Canadians uh, and Americans who don't like cannabis likely don't like porn, don't like gambling. And that is just a group of people that will never participate in the category in any meaningful way, except perhaps on a medical cannabis perspective where they might need the product for, let's say, the epilepsy of their kids and so on and so forth. If we look at the broader number of Canadians and Americans who accept it, the question then becomes, um, how would they partake in the product? Mm. And, 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 and what does that mean for the consumer experience? So, for example, in, in Canada, we know there are many consumers who don't want to publicly identify with cannabis because mm. for professional reasons or what have you, they don't want to go into a store, be seen to go to, into, into a store or to buy online and have that information tracked somewhere. Yeah. Well, look what happened. Look what happened to Elon Musk. You know, Elon right. Musk lit up a doobie while he was on an interview. And I mean, it hasn't really hurt him. He's now the world's richest person. But that was shocking at the time. I think people were felt that, that was, there was a calls for his resignation, calls for the board to step in and remove him. It was, it was quite an outcry for something that you know, was legal in the place that he was doing it, which was in California. Yeah, and very benign. Like cannabis has been consumed for upwards of 10,000 years. Now, right. I, I mean, if he had, if he had, well, had a scotch, I think people would have been like, that's a little weird he's drinking on air, but I don't think people would have called for his resignation. Right. And the share price wouldn't have taken a big hit for right. that 24 right. or 48 hours. But right. what it what it says around customer experience is that you'll have a lot of people who might be in favor of the product, might imbibe in the product, but will still buy it through secret channels. Mm. And they don't show up in the legal or regulated world. And you have others that will come in um, and they could be – uh, let's say baby boomers who used to smoke when they were 15 to 20 and now are, are coming back into the legal category and might be a little tentative to come into a ranking spanking new cannabis store, not familiar with all the weird names like like nuclear kush or, or purple um, uh, cancer and weird <laughs> things like that, and will be very tentative and don't want to deal with the, the manner of woman who's the bud tender who got eight tattoos and 12 earrings and so on. And that is a very off-putting experience for a lot of people as well. So mm. the customer experience is multifactorial. It depends who the customer is, depends on what they want to buy and their needs. And it's not something that's easily tackled. Through well, it feels like template. cannabis, it feels like cannabis is almost still on the edge of like, it's still got this kind of like, wavy gravy kind of 60s counterculture sort of Woodstock thing it's kind of stuck in for some reason right um and uh and and so the branding that you do see is is kind of strange and it looks really amateurish and sort of small potatoes versus like what you would see from you know a, a great winery you know i mean you don't look at a the white label of a great winery and go oh wow you know they're really stuck in the 1930s like you don't feel that way at all right and and what do you think that is why is it still so sort of backwards referential well um and you by the way you're absolutely right in that assessment it trades on those brand elements and those messages and what have you for good reason 
in a way, because that's where a lot of the brand equity, that's where a lot of the awareness, mm. that's where a lot of the buzz, pardon the pun, originated. The problem is that is a very narrow view of branding, of the product, of how it could be consumed, and ultimately the consumer experience that um, that you you and Sprinkler focus on. So where the if we look at that as sort of branding 101, 101.0 in cannabis, we're slowly evolving to the next phase of branding, where it becomes more like um, a Nike and a Procter & Gamble brand and so on and so forth. The challenge is, is that the high consumption segments within the industry, and this is where cannabis is very similar to uh, beer and alcohol, the high consumption segments are typically males and females, let's say 16 to 24. Those aren't the same soccer moms that buy Tide detergent. So there are somewhat misalignments between who your target consumer is, who buys the product, how you talk to them, and who, and therefore who you want to appeal to going forward. We will, we will get there, but it's it's going to take a little bit of time. Let me challenge that for a second, please. Because I'm always I'm always I'm always quick to challenge. Okay. First of all, soccer moms actually are not the majority buyers of those products, which is interesting. And so I'm always quick to challenge like demographic stereotypes. But let me let me just throw something your way. So is a thought. So what what's sort of interesting about the market right now is that it's everyone. It feels like everyone's still selling the category. Right, they're still selling the category of this is cannabis and you can get high from it, which is like, got it. Like, um, I think that's been a reasonably well known fact for quite a long time. Okay, so I don't see, it doesn't see like a giant newsflash, right? And so they, and so the the branding is lazy because it's just going to this like '60s stuff and you know with like crazy graphics and 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 it it just it just feels like they're just selling the thing. And so what happens is the products are not differentiated from each other. What's interesting to me, if I take a look at a market which I think is very interestingly differentiated, would be the pain reliever market. Uh, now, there are different compounds in pain relievers, like acetaminophen and, and there's aspirin, and there's different compounds. But, but there are many different pain reliever brands that use the same compound with some slight differences, right? Like Excedrin is acetaminophen with caffeine. Like there's, they'll just kind of do little things to it. And what they do in the market is they essentially target outcomes. This is the one for headaches. This is the one for muscle cramps. This is the one for backaches. And in fact, some of these pain relievers are incredibly specific in terms of what they think they're going to solve, right? They're not down to your right toe yet, but they're, they're definitely different parts of the body, different sort of ailments and different sort of ways of approaching it. Even though Principally, these compounds are reasonably simple, reasonably generic. You can buy in all of them available as generics. And they essentially, you swallow them as a pill mostly, and they mostly just go everywhere in your body, right? So it's not like, they, not like this particular pill will just go to your back. Like that's not the way it works. And so it's interesting to me, if you think about the market you're in, wouldn't it be interesting to say, hey, this is what you take when you've got epilepsy. This is what you take when you've got backache. This is what you take when you've got sleep problems, like a more outcome-based. And then the brands essentially targeted around those outcomes. And is anyone trying that right now? Is anyone going in that direction? I, I think they're trying. Uh, there's a couple of things I want to say uh, first and foremost, and that is... In many markets, particularly in Canada, 
there are highly restrictive um, regulations around what uh, claims you can make, how do you message the product, how you show it visually, mm. in terms of things like sponsorship and so on. So the the guardrails are very tight in a lot of places about what you can say and what you can't say. So that's number one. We're not talking about marketing detergent or Chanel dresses because we don't have the same levers that typical consumer packaged goods would have. So that's number one. Number two is that perhaps the industry is the legal industry is at fault to this but many consumers and again we go back to the the people who are the highest consumption segments they want or they have been trained to want the highest quality cannabis which often includes the highest levels of THC for the lowest possible price hmm interesting so it's like buying a car based purely on horsepower. So horsepower is THC in, in the case of this industry. So we all agree, and you, you've hit on some excellent insights, we all agree we need to get to what you described. But that's not where the market is today, and that's not where the revenue is today. So how do you do that? And that's the huge challenge in the one of the huge challenges in the industry right now. And I'll just throw one other point there, which I think will resonate with you and your listeners. And that is, what is this industry? Is it OTC pharma like you just described? I actually think it is. Is it tobacco? Is it fast moving consumer goods? Is it beverage alcohol? Each of those are different industries with different brand and customer experience drivers, but they are still um, very different. So we haven't figured out yet what this industry is. The, the reality is it'll be all of them, but it hasn't coalesced into that yet. It'll probably go through stages, right? Like it does yep. feel like the the prescription sort of pain reliever stage is a more legitimizing stage. And then you can kind of move from there. I mean, I think it's hard to go from, you know, majority of the population being in opposition to now say 30%, but that's still a big number to suddenly like, you know, we're buying it in the store, like it's a can of pop. Like right. That's a, that's a big jump. Right. Sure um, but you know, Hey, prescription based and ailment based or, in, you know, also I would say they don't do a very good job of even talking about the levels that the horsepower comments, a great comment. But, you know, that's another thing that's like almost impossible to discern. And you have to talk to your, how you're described with the tattooed, you know, multi-earringed, you know, kind of uh, clerk behind the counter to sort of figure it out. And it's, 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 I think there's just so much that can be done from the standpoint of making the customer experience easier by making it easier to understand, you know, what you're buying. Okay. Um, also, there's not much of an online experience around it either. You can't right. do that zero moment of truth stuff in advance. Like you kind of walk in blind to a dispensary and they're sort of confronted by all these sort of, you know, labels from San Francisco circa 1969. And you started talking to some kid who's 20. It's like, it's a weird, the whole thing is a very weird and very, um, almost like you just feel like you're doing something wrong. Right. And, 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 <laughs> and they, and they can't you. take credit cards. I mean, that's the other, oh, the industry is oh, yeah. like, that's like, Oh my gosh, like the whole issue around cash and credit cards. And that just amplifies the whole sense of, you know, I got something, something surreptitious happening here. Yes. And, and the United States, you know, as much as I'm a, a big fan of the United States, it's, it's really, you know, generations behind in terms, in terms of in, enabling companies 
to develop a great customer experience in, 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 in certain markets. I want to go back to one of the points you just said, because the market, the branding will catch up when there's much more research and knowledge on the plant. So for example, THC and CBD, those are two relatively well-known, well-known cannabinoids are two of but hundreds that exist in the plant. Oh, and we've only really studied this plant extensively the last, I would say, 10 years, 15 years. And that began in Israel because of, of the need to deal with, you know, you know, thousands of cases of PTSD, you know, which are particular to the, you know, the conflicts in that region. But the United States and Canada fought a war on drugs for decades. So yeah. to get to, to the, the ability to become outcome focused we need to know a lot more about these cannabinoids, how they work together, how they work with different genotypes and so on. The, the, going back to the car analogy for a second, you'll know this as well as I do. Horsepower tells you nothing about how fast a car can drive. You need to understand torque mm -hmm. and yep. other issues. So we need to go from a proxy like horsepower down to what torque is and RPMs and so on and so forth. And we will get there, but it's going to take a little time. That's super interesting. What an interesting. So let's just kind of wrap with like a little peek into the future, which is psychedelics. I mean, we're there are even a step, I'd say maybe more than one step, several steps behind cannabis. But, you know, a lot of people are saying that psychedelics are the future that may even eclipse cannabis because of what they can do uh, and the impact they can have. So what's, what's your prediction there? And where do you think that market sits right now from a customer experience standpoint? So I'm, I'm one of those people. I just saw a statistic yesterday, and you know you can validate these or not. That the potential um, universe of mental health um, issues that could be positively impacted by psychedelics, and I'm talking about various forms of psychedelics like LSD and psilocybin and DMT and MDMA. We're talking about a 17 trillion trillion dollar potential market. And that includes things like anxiety, depression, PTSD, eating disorders, addictions, and so on and so forth. So as much as I am all in on the transformational impact on cannabis, I think uh, psychedelics is going to be a magnitude greater. Now, what's super interesting about psychedelics is that psychedelics will enter, enter our lives primarily and very quickly on the medical pharma side, hmm. as well as through what I call psychedelics as a service. So hmm. to be able to consume many of these products, you need to do these in conjunction with a trained psychotherapist or a psychiatrist or a, a psychologist because, because they could be potentially very dangerous and, and scary for many people. And again, I'm talking about the legal psychedelics industry. Because of the need for human facilitation, this is going to create a fascinating and a very interesting consumer or patient experience. And we will see that entire industry, at least initially, being built around that kind of a model, an integrated healthcare model with both people, drugs, and a unique infrastructure, physical infrastructure that these treatments will happen in. So that will be you know, very trans transformational in terms of how we deliver fundamental health care to people. Hmm. And how wow. that will evolve into a recreational you know, situation is absolutely fascinating. Well, and that's, that is interesting because you know, you've got psychiatrists able to prescribe the 
traditional sort of drugs and, and, and opioids and stuff like that. Uh, that's worked out great. Um, but yeah. what's interesting, yeah, uh, but what's interesting is um, there's a larger population of psychologists and counselors and therapists who can't prescribe right now. Right. But these, I suspect, would sort of fall through the cracks a little bit, right? And so you you actually open up a much larger market of individuals who would have access to this stuff with like sort of, but, you know, again, the customer experience will have to be one that's guided, I think. Well, 100%. And then we get into this sort of, you know, wellness category that mm. sits between, you know, prescribed medicines with FDA approvals and all of that. And the recreational use of magic mushrooms, which is what you get in places like Amsterdam now. And that's something that you and I, Grad, have talked about in the past. And that's the whole notion of functional mushrooms are also known as nootropics, which are things like cognitive enhancers, brain boosters, and things like that, and microdosing. And that's already happening right now in the quasi-legal or even firmly illegal space by you know biohackers in silicon valley and you know upper middle class men and women in in the neighborhood that i live in so that is exploding in the shadows it is all very often based on really positive good experiences i'm not going to endorse you know the use the consumption of of uh, psychedelic mushrooms but in a lot of cases it's a much more benign substance used uh in a very conservative way than other products are and these markets will emerge very quickly. And we, you know, what we know in, in one of your neighborhoods, Oregon, it's already legal. So there's, there's, there's going to be a huge sectors emerging very quickly. And you might be surprised at the lack of stigma around psychedelics because of the transformational um, impact that those substances can have on curing. I'm not talking treating now. I'm talking about curing depression, anxiety, and things like that. And when you have DARPA, which you know is a you know a yep. sort of a Pentagon agency that yep. is spending the tens of millions of dollars in funding psychedelic-based research for PTSD, hmm. that could quickly tip the the stigma scales towards acceptance of these projects very quickly. And they already have fast track FDA approvals. Really? That's fascinating. Because yeah. it's almost it's almost feels like in some ways, because cannabis was used so recreationally for so long and was always kind of on the wink wink outskirts of everything, it sort of continues to kind of carry that sort of kid in the basement, you know, with no ambition, sort of, you know, smoking weed and that kind of stuff. Whereas it's almost like psychedelics were so much more tightly locked down. Like the, the war on drugs, I think was much more effective on LSD and, and those kinds of things. And so they were really unavailable. I mean, or, or I guess I'm going to even know how in God's name people get their hands on them. And so in some ways they've not acquired a brand stigma. They're in some way unbranded. Absolutely. It's kind of like, what are these things? And it's like, oh, well, this is a way to manage, you know, depression and cure it. It's like, oh, well, that's pretty interesting. And so, yeah, it becomes, and it, again, firmly plants itself in that sort of prescription sort of camp um, as it, before it moves into something that's more, more broad scale. Right. So your, your, pa your patient, your customer experience, your branding 2.0 or 3.0 uh, paradigm, we will get there faster with psychedelics or, you know, quasi psychedelics than we will with cannabis because no uh, one will go yeah. out and buy LSD. They'll buy the grad con pill. 
and they won't even know well, it's not, not so fast. I'm not sure we're going to do that kind of branding, but I okay, hear you. I hear you. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, that that is super interesting and a very interesting brand discussion. Um, and so for, for everyone who's listening in, like just think about, you know, brands are everywhere, right? And brands, brand evolution is everywhere. And this market is particularly interesting to me because it's very rare to see a new set of branding paradigms emerge. It's almost like seeing an island emerge in the Pacific, you know, from a volcano or something. It's just doesn't happen that often, uh, particularly these days. And uh, this is going to be, if, if, you know, Mitch, if you're right, if it's really going to be a $17 trillion category, um, these will be some of the biggest brands in our lives in 20 years, which will be uh, pretty interesting. Or, or um, less. Or less. Or less. Or 10 years. So, okay. That's cool. All right. Well, uh, that's awesome, man. Uh, thanks. That was great. Uh, I'm going to wrap. I'm going to wrap. And I thank you so much for joining today and sharing uh, your insights. That was great. Uh, for the CXM experience, I'm Grad Khan, CXO at Sprinkler, and I'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>